Where did the name come from? Yeah, so it's actually one of the moons of Jupiter, and it is my real name, which my parents gave me when I was born. The way that happened is they, like I said, they're, they're in um, visual effects, and they were working on uh, CG animations for a TV show about astronomy 25 years ago, back in late 80s, early 90s. And yes, they were doing these animations of black holes eating up a bunch of material in a disk around them, volcanoes on Io. So Io is, is uh, the most volcanic celestial body in our solar system. And they get I guess they were looking through a book of astronomy, doing research for this TV show, and they came across the name and they thought that was really cool. And that's what they decided to name me. And it's not clear whether that influenced my decision to go into astronomy eventually. I don't think that's why, uh, you know, I went through many different career aspirations before I ended up going into astronomy, but it is sort of a weird coincidence otherwise. Today, we're speaking with Io Kleiser. She is an astronomy and astrophysics PhD student at Caltech. In our conversation, we discuss how she decided to go into the sciences and some of the challenges that have come with that path. Among them, building a foundation, of subject matter knowledge in order to pursue the career she wanted, as well as the reality of being a female in a male-dominated field. Io's current work focuses on supernovae and the phenomena associated with exploding stars. Thank you for listening. Is this where you'd like to be in your life? And is this what you'd like to be doing? How'd you get here? And where do you hope to go in the future? Most importantly, how are things right now, and what have you learned along the way? This is Bill Ehrlich. Is now a good time? I had a bit of an unusual upbringing, having parents in the visual effects business. So actually, that was what I was thinking about doing at first, was, you know, movies and TV. Maybe not TV so much, but I spent a while, especially when I was much younger, thinking that I would be an artist of some kind. That was the assumption throughout, I don't know, when I was three to high school. Especially painting and drawing, I was, I was really sort of obsessive about it when I was a small child. And then as I got to sort of middle school, I thought about becoming a, a film director or a writer or something like that. And it was not until I had just a, I mean, I, I always had a curiosity about about science and about how things worked, but never really considered it as a, as a potential career. I just thought it was interesting. And it was not until I had a really good, a, a really fantastic chemistry teacher in high school that I started thinking about it. And uh, one thing led to another, and I, I started learning about more different scientific fields. And, and when I went into college, I was actually at first a, a geology major, and then eventually moved over to astrophysics in spite of the extremely daunting, you know, math and physics background that I was going to have to build in which I had very little confidence. So, it was it was an interesting first few years of college when I really had to confront what I saw as a as a huge weakness for myself technically. And you were thinking that you would be going into either the visual effects or some artistic field or writing. Yeah. And then you had this teacher, this chemistry teacher in high school, mm -hmm. and he kind of ignited. Yeah, Mr. Burdick. Basically what clicked is that that particular teacher 
just had a very a very positive outlook on science. He just everything was sort of fun for him, non-judgmental. He liked to come up with sort of cute analogies. Analogies like treating individual chemical particles as, for example, a boy and a girl who, you know, have a crush on each other or something. And so he just sort of made the class very, very fun and took it away from the idea of science is really hard and you have to be very serious about it. He just, he was not serious. And I think that's sort of what made it click for me. So yeah, that was mid high school was sort of the beginning of my actually thinking about going into science and, and getting interested in, in technical things. And it's actually not that surprising looking back on it because my relationship with art was a little bit, I wouldn't say that I was really the super emotional creative type who just wanted to like had a bunch of feelings and wanted to get them out on to in some medium you know i was really much more interested in the process and in techniques and using you know perspective and really thinking about thinking critically about composition of a painting or use of color so i was much more interested in uh, approaching art as a technical puzzle. And it sort of didn't occur to me until much later that science is very similar. It's also, science is also very creative in some ways. So it's sort of that combination of a little bit of creativity, but a lot of technical mastery that you have to, you have to achieve. And so I, I consider science and art very similar in a lot of ways. So the transition was kind of natural, although it definitely took some angsty years in my early early undergrad to get over the the difficulties of of really trying to get a math and physics background. What was that like thinking, okay, now I need to go build this foundation to yeah. continue this pursuit? It was it was definitely a sort of both painful but cathartic time in my life, I guess. And it wasn't actually, you know, objectively, it wasn't that I sucked at math and physics. I definitely felt that I did. I thought I was failing everything. And I did fail a lot of my math quizzes and stuff like that. But it was, it was just this acceptance of my shortcomings that I'd never really had to face before in, in such a, you know, obvious and dramatic way. And I had to do it really quickly. I had to face them and then say, okay, I'm going to sit down and just do integrals or do physics problems. And, and that's, that's just all I'm going to do. I had like very, I had a bit of a social life, but I didn't really have any hobbies or anything. And I just really dedicated myself to getting past that. And I'm glad that now I've, it's sort of calmed down and, and I have hobbies and I, don't work much on the weekends and everything, but it was it was an interesting time when I really was dedicating myself fully to fixing that or filling that gap in in my knowledge. And in some way, in some ways, I really enjoyed it. In some ways, it you know it was really terrible because I you know didn't sleep enough. I would stay up late pounding energy drinks. I also started doing research pretty early in in. Uh, in college and I so I would be 
you know, observing for my research group on telescopes late at night, you know, once a week or something. So I would do that until seven in the morning and then go to class at 10. So it was not a very healthy, you know, I was young so I could do it. But yeah, it was... How long did that last for? Um, I would say the first two or three years of, of college were very much like that. The last year was a little bit more reasonable. I started doing less observing, so I didn't have to pull all-nighters just for, for research. Although I, I did still pull some, and I started getting a little bit more into like rock climbing in my last year. Where did you go to school? I was at Berkeley. So it's good to be back, you know, I have a lot of, a lot of good, good memories from, from this school. Early undergrad was sort of the turning point, and I went in as a geology major. Um, okay. I pretty much started out doing geology, mostly because I also found that interesting, but I was worried about the math and physics that would be required for an astrophysics degree. And there isn't as much math and physics required for geology. So, so that's how I started out. I took a few classes in it. I enjoyed them. They were very cool. But I happened to, I, I just asked this professor at Berkeley, Alex Filipenko, who's pretty, pretty well known, if I could do research under him. And a few months later, he was like, okay, I have an opening for you. And so halfway through my first year, I started doing research with him, and he studies supernovae, which is still what I study today. And I just absolutely loved it. And so actually doing research in astronomy was what motivated me to just say, I have to sit down and I have to get the physics and math under my belt in order to do this as my job. Do you think you would have had the motivation and the fortitude to do that without having gotten a taste of this thing you really enjoyed, the real thing? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure. And it's possible that if I had done research instead with one of the geologists in my department, I might have really liked that and I might have stayed. So I, I don't know. I think it was partly getting a taste of it in research, in the context of research. But I think part of it was also I needed to prove to myself that I could that I could do this, you know, that I was not limited by sucking at math and physics, that I could make myself not suck at math and physics if I worked hard enough. And I think that's, you know, that's always true if you if you really love doing something, if you put the time in, you're going to be able to if you really put the time in, you're going to be able to do it. And that's something that I wanted to prove that I could do. unfortunate things about being in astronomy, but probably also other fields of academia, is there are so many opportunities to doubt yourself at every turn. And so even though I ended up doing very well in, in undergrad, especially on the research front, it was much more, you know, my grades were okay, my um, GRE scores were okay, but I think really what what got me into grad school was the fact that I did research starting out very early, had a paper out as an undergrad, and I had a 
you know, I knew a lot of people in the field as I was applying. So I think what people look at is really, are you driven to do research? And I definitely was. And going into grad school, I was feeling pretty excited and pretty confident. And then I was hit by grad school classes and a, a really sort of insane amount of expectations from different people, which were all different. And it was very strange when I was going into grad school at Caltech, um, which is a very small school. It was a it was a strange culture shock for me going from Berkeley, where nobody's paying attention to you and you can do whatever you want, and how much time and effort you put in just is reflected in how well you do. And Caltech, where everybody's kind of, I felt in my first year or so that everybody was kind of in my business and they were like, I don't know if you're doing enough of the homework or as doing as well as you should be. Whereas at Berkeley, nobody would ever notice. So it was a, it was a very strange experience going into Caltech and suddenly having people watch what I was doing all the time. And, and it was sort of critical in a different way. Berkeley's very, you know, you just go through and you're a number and you only stand out if you make sure that you stand out. And at Caltech, it was much more, I don't know, it felt very stifling for me. So I'm still getting my PhD at Caltech, technically, but I'm at UC Berkeley as a visiting student for the rest of my PhD. So I'll be, I'll be around here for another couple of years, but technically I will get my degree. I'll go back to Caltech to, to defend. Yeah, so I, I went from undergrad at Berkeley to grad school in astrophysics at Caltech, and... Did you major in physics then? I majored in both physics and astrophysics. So ast astrophysics, and, and people often ask me the difference between astrophysics and astronomy, which I'm not sure there's really a clear distinction between the two. They kind of overlap. But astrophysics is basically physics in space. It's physics applied to problems that that have to do with stars and and the universe and and large scale structures. So astrophysics can include study of planets, study of stars themselves, study of explosions of stars, study of study of galaxies, the cosmic microwave background, early universe, and usually people who are studying these things are using physics in order to understand what's going on. Astronomy, I think of as more, you can have an understanding of the physics of what's going on, but you can also be an amateur astronomer. And that's sort of the distinction that I see. Astronomy is a lot of, it's more fact-based, like these are the constellations, these are the stars that we're looking at. You can discover a lot of things in space as an astronomer, but to really characterize and understand what those systems are and, and how they evolve, that's more astrophysics. It's definitely still a male-dominated field, but we're actually doing pretty well in that, at least at Caltech, in my grad program, it's 50-50 women. So that's at the grad student level. And there are fewer at the postdoc level and then fewer still at the faculty level. And it's a combination of the fact that, you know, faculty are older and and things are changing, so you have more younger women coming into the field than, than there used to be. But women also leave in larger numbers, or a larger fraction of women leave. 
And so people have been thinking a lot about, it's, they call it a leaky pipeline, in, in that astronomy, but to a greater extent, actually other, other STEM fields just leak women as you go up the ranks. And there are a number of reasons for that. I think a lot of the time women feel, women are not, there, there's a bias against women, a natural bias against women in, in STEM fields. And it has to be a very conscious effort by people in general to sort of check that. And I find that I have this bias as well. You know, if, if some man is saying something aggressively and authoritatively, people are more likely to listen than if a woman is uh, in general until, until you start developing a culture where we're aware that this happens and we can sort of check ourselves and say, okay, I'm not gonna think that way. If, you know, am I, am I reacting to this person who's being kind of aggressive? Am I reacting badly because it's a woman? Would, it, you know, would I react differently if she were a man? So I think it's really important to take those things into account. And I would say that I haven't, I haven't experienced so much of that sort of, that sort of bias. I think that when I, when I say things, my colleagues generally take them seriously. And I haven't felt talked over in meetings, which is another, another common complaint. And even though when I was, when I was an undergrad in these physics classes, I, I wasn't, I certainly wasn't conscious of, of the fact that most of my classmates were men. You know, it's a lot of white dudes in physics and I've become more conscious of, of being very outnumbered lately, but it wasn't a conscious problem for me at the time. Although I think I did probably internalize a little bit of this image of just the very extremely nerdy white dude who is very sure in what he's saying and sort of, you know, it's, it's a stereotype that is very easy to fall into that this guy knows what he's doing and I don't look like that guy. And so maybe I don't know what I'm doing, which is, you know, it's silly. And as soon as you say it out loud, it sounds silly, but, but it's hard not to internalize that when you're just around people who look different from you and, and behave differently from the way you behave and they at least appear to be more successful. They're not necessarily more successful, but they, they at least make it seem like that. And the other thing is, is sexual harassment. And that's, I don't know if you've been seeing some of the articles recently, but it's, I think astronomy has really sort of had a lot of scandals lately come to light, sexual harassment scandals at various institutions including both Berkeley and Caltech. And it's not because astronomy is unique in having a bunch of creepy guys in there. I think it's because astronomy is sort of at this critical point where there are enough women and there is enough awareness of diversity issues and, and social issues where you can actually bring these problems to light in a lot of other fields like physics and, and chemistry, they have these problems, but they're not, they're not at the point yet where people are speaking out about them. And that's a very prevalent problem. I've had, I've had run-ins with that a number of times. And you just sort of have to get past it and 
try to figure out how to be productive again. And so it's an extra challenge that a lot of women face. It's, it's extremely distracting. It makes it very difficult to get work done when, when you have problems like these. I mean, it started out being, in astronomy, it was almost all white men, and, or at least at any, in any position of power. And so nobody really had these problems because there weren't any women around, right? And then the first few women came along, and I can't even imagine what they had to go through. But I think the way that women dealt with this in the past is they just sort of kept their heads down and didn't say anything because you would just get labeled as a troublemaker and it would be inconvenient for people to deal with it. And so now as you have a younger generation coming in, it's a little closer to 50-50 and they're saying, this isn't okay, we know this happens and we're not gonna stand for it. People bring these issues to light and a lot of the, a lot of the older and very well-meaning Astronomers are just like, I had no idea this was going on. Like, what do you mean there's sexual harassment? And it's just because they don't, they're not in the, you know, they're not in the line of fire and they never have been. So it's been really, it's been really interesting to watch people react to this cultural shift, which is really sort of trying to turn, turn these things over and, and expose them and say, we can't stand for this. It's not just, it's not just because we want to have you know, warm, fuzzy feelings about diversity. It, it harms the field. It, it, you could be getting rid of some of your best talent if you're, if you're providing them with these extra challenges that have nothing to do with science. It's a really weird working situation because it you have sort of endless freedom. It depends on who your advisor is, who the, the people you work with are, and it also depends on what kind of project you're working on. So if you are really part of a group that works as a team on, for example, building an instrument for a telescope or something like that, then it's a little bit more constrained. But what I do is more, it's more computational, and I'm pretty much free to work on my own, seek help from people when I need it. But it pretty much means that I can work whenever I want, from wherever I want, and that freedom is great sometimes, but it can also be really dangerous because there just isn't anyone sitting there saying, okay, you have to get this done this week or this month or anything. It's sort of, you have to really motivate yourself. You have to really find a way to sit down every day and be interested in what you're doing. And sometimes it is really interesting because you're studying things in space, but sometimes it's just like, oh my God, this code's not working. I don't know why. I don't really want to find out. I'm, I have very little interest 
in the process of just going through this code and finding the bug. So a lot of it is, is sort of tedious work that you just have to you just have to really motivate yourself to do so that you can get to the good stuff. And so that's one flip side. The other flip side is that it's it's hard not to feel constantly guilty about not working whenever you're not working. So you can work whenever you want, but that also means that you can work at night and on weekends. And, and uh, maybe if you were a better astrophysicist, you would be working all the time. And it's, it's very hard to get out of that mindset of just, I feel bad whenever I'm not working. So you have to kind of make a conscious effort, both to sit down and get things done, but then make sure you, you spend time on yourself and have hobbies and spend time with your friends and stuff like that. It's definitely not a, a normal workflow, and it's, it's its own set of challenges. I was speaking to one of my friends who really described it as kind of entrepreneurial in a way because, I mean, yeah, and I, I think the point of the PhD program is to sort of develop that, that ability to identify the kind of problems that really make you want to get up in the morning and do work and figure out how to keep yourself on track pursuing those problems. You know, it's a transition between undergrad where you may have extremely smart people, but what they know how to do and what they're trained to do is problem sets, homework once a week, tests. Somebody gives you something to do and you do it. And it's often a lot of work, but it's very straightforward what you need to do. And that's very different from a PhD where people are like, all right, you have to solve this problem and you have to figure out how to do it and you have to motivate yourself to do it. And by the way, you have to figure out what problem you want to solve first before you get to start solving the problem. So it's, a, it's just a very different way of working and way of thinking. And it's, that's what you need to learn how to do if you want to be, if you want to be a professional astronomer. Because, I mean, once you're, once you're a professional astronomer, yeah, you have, you have some constraints in terms of if you apply for a grant to do a particular project, then you kind of need to do that project. And then you have responsibility for students and you have to make sure that they get good projects. But but yeah, it's really about coming up with ideas and then sitting down and figuring out how to pursue them and then putting in the work. So I'm studying, I'm studying supernovae from massive stars and I'm using the stellar evolution code. It's called MESA. And so that's, that's one component of what I'm doing. And the second component, I'll take the output from MESA, so the star as it would be in its, in its final stages and I have a code that I wrote, it's called a hydrodynamics code or a fluid dynamics code. And I use that to simulate the explosion. So it basically, I, I basically use it to put a bunch of energy in the center of the star, a huge amount of energy, and then, and then track how that will you know, explode, explode the star and what will happen to the ejected material. And then, once I have that, once I have that sort of exploded star profile, then I also use what's called a radiative transfer code, which calculates, it basically tracks photons as they propagate through the ejected material. And so what that's important for is calculating what 
this would look like if you looked out into space and saw a supernova, right? So, so when people, when you point a telescope into space and you point it at a galaxy that happens to have a supernova in it, usually what you see, because most of these are very far away, is the galaxy is a little smudge and there's a dot in the smudge. And from that dot, you have to figure out what it is, what kind of supernova it is, what kind of star exploded, how much energy is in there. And so the way you have to do this is to track the brightness over time of that dot. So it's a dot that gets bright and then fades over some, over some time. And you can also get spectra. So like a prism separates out white light into a rainbow, you do the same thing with the, with the supernova's light. And if you, if you plot the intensity of light as a function of wavelength, you'll have some areas in that rainbow that are brighter and some that are dimmer. And that corresponds to, or that gives you information on the chemical composition of the ejected material from the star, because you have various, you have various lines from, from different chemicals that, that are there. And it also gives you information on how fast the material is moving because those lines get Doppler shifted and Doppler shifting is like what happens if you, you know, you hear a train coming in one direction and you, you hear the pitch of the trains, the sound of the train higher as it's approaching you and, and lower as it's going away. That's because the frequency as you are perceiving it is higher as it's approaching you and lower as it goes away. When you were describing the I don't mean to cut you off right in the middle. When you're describing those colors and everything, it's amazing how similar that sounds is when you were describing the way you approached art. Yeah. Like I'm... like way back when you were like, <laughs> I like the technical aspects. I like, yeah. you know, picking the colors and the compositions, like all of these <laughs> things. It's amazing how that art science. Yeah, and it's, it's very... I mean, you, it's very easy to sort of step back and appreciate the aesthetic of, of the, the technique of what you're doing. And so, yeah, that's, that's one of, and also the creativity of the different ways that people come up with to find things out about the universe. So even for, you know, the simplest versions of, of these calculations, we need to use supercomputers to track all of this, all of these photons moving through the material. And then you end up with what are called light curves, so brightness of the supernova over time and spectra. And then you can take those and you can compare them to data. And you can say, okay, does this match what I have already seen when I have pointed my telescope in space? And you can do this many times. You can run a suite of simulations with different types of stars that you're exploding and exploding them with different amounts of energy. You can do whatever you want. And then you can say, okay, which ones match with things that we've seen before and which ones don't. And if we have some that don't match something we've seen before, then, then why? Why, wouldn't we, why would we not have seen this? Is it because that type of star doesn't exist? Or is it because that type of star fails to explode and, and collapses into a black hole instead? So those are some of the interesting questions you can start answering once you can map these simulated data onto actual sets of data. I just love when you start talking about the work that you're doing and science and supernova, I can hear the excitement. And 
it's like science as adventure, science as exploration. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it can be very easy to lose sight of that because the field, like I was saying, is very competitive. And I think it's very easy. It's very easy in any any job that anybody does to really get uh, bogged down in, well, how well am I doing? Am I doing as well as everybody else around me? Or am I like the, am I, am I following the pack rather than leading the pack? It can, it can get very, very sort of egotistical. And a lot of, I think a lot of people, and it has to be, you know, it's because it is very competitive and, and people get very sort of embroiled in self-promotion, which is very important. You have to, you know, you have to communicate your results and communicate to people why what you're doing is exciting. And I think a lot of people really forget that the reason we're all here is because space is really cool and there's a lot of stuff going on out there and there are a lot of things that we don't understand yet. And we get paid, not a lot, but we get paid to just sit down and think about space and and do cool problems and solve puzzles. So it really takes a conscious effort to try to put down all the, like, I need to be successful, I need to... I need to be smarter than other people. I need to be better than other people. It's hard to put that mindset down and just like put it aside and and think about why we're all actually doing this in the first place, which is because it's really interesting and because nobody's done it before. that you can get a huge amount of depth on that one thing that you're doing. And I, at, at this point, halfway through grad school, I know a fair amount about my particular thing that I'm doing. But there's so much out there in, in not just astronomy, but also different fields of science that is so interesting. And I think some of the, some of the really big, some of the really interesting fields right now are, are fields of neuroscience and fields where there's actually a, an impact on real life, like developments in green energy and medical developments, you know, things with real human impact. And I think, I think there's so much out there. And one of the things that frustrates me a little bit about, about being in academia right now is that I don't, have a lot of time to think about anything else that's going on in the world and I'm just thinking about stuff that's going on in space and and there's so much else there's so so many other things to learn about that are they're not as physically large but but they're very momentous so I would like to start just in my free time branching out and and thinking more about things that are going on in other fields 
but I think that also takes a, a conscious effort. You have to really take the time to, to try to learn things that are not directly going toward your own, your success in, in the field of astronomy. If you had a piece of advice to give to someone who's maybe thinking about making a switch into science or a more technical field, or even just a younger version of yourself, what, mm -hmm. would, what would that advice be? I would say, and I think this is advice that they will get from a lot of people in astronomy, I would say that undermining yourself is absolutely the easiest thing to do. There's nothing, there are so many difficult things, there are so many difficult things that you encounter trying to go into a field like astronomy, and it's worth it. You know, the math is hard enough, the physics is hard enough, you have to learn how to program, but the easiest thing to do is to doubt yourself and to convince yourself that you don't belong there. And it's such a problem for so many people. There's, it's, what I'm basically describing is called the imposter syndrome. It's extremely common for people in science to imagine that everybody else belongs there and they got to where they, and you got to where you are by mistake because you know some fluke happened and someone was mistaken and they thought you were really good for no reason and wrote you a really good letter of recommendation and you know whatever you you it's so easy to to rationalize away all of your accomplishments and just say that you know that didn't matter that wasn't that didn't count I had help with that, you know, my advisor did most of that paper anyway, or like wrote a lot of it anyway, told me what to do the whole time. That wasn't really like, you know, my project. And, and I think what you have to realize is that that's, that's true for everybody. It's always true. And one phrase that I really, that, that I heard from someone in my field that really sort of stuck with me is when you when you're feeling this way, what's happening is you're, you're comparing your own outtakes to everybody else's highlight reel, you know? What you see from everybody else is all the stuff that they did do and what they did do right, and the things they discuss in their talks are the best of how they spent their time. And then you sit there thinking that that's how, you know, that's how they are always, and that they haven't made mistakes or had, you know, days where they couldn't get any work done you just imagine that nobody else is like you and that's totally false. So I think my advice is, yeah, you, you have to acknowledge how much work goes into being an astronomer and, and getting a degree, getting a, getting a PhD. It's a lot of work and, and it's not easy, but you know, don't undermine yourself when you don't have to you don't need to turn yourself into your own enemy and sort of undercut your own accomplishments, appreciate your own accomplishments as your own. That's really good. If you, if you had to title uh, your own autobiography oh, or God. just a biography <laughs> of yourself, what would, you, what would you title it? I would have to think about that for a while. I'm not sure I can... I've never, I like, 
I'm not at the point of thinking about an autobiography, man. I'm like well, 25. Someone, but if there was a biography, oh god, just what would you? Tell I don't me? think I'm gonna be able to answer that. I would have to think about it. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> I mean, that's not that. I, I'm just thinking about in conjunction with your work. That's a lot of pressure, my. <laughs> yeah maybe right. that's a lot of pressure would be that, that's a lot of pressure is pretty good you're blowing up stars right <laughs> you're right that's actually that's actually not bad <laughs> that's <laughs> that's a lot of pressure <laughs> yeah maybe that'll be the title of my autobiography yeah that's funny <laughs> that wouldn't be a bad title <laughs> no that's perfect well, this is great. Thank you so much for sitting down and sharing Thank you. more about your path and journey. I'm excited to hear more about what you discovered about the universe and what's going yeah, on absolutely. inside of these stars that are blowing up. Thank you so much for listening. Is Now a Good Time is a production by Bill Ehrlich, Mike Benz, Shane Callahan, Chloe List, and Ryan Lipkin. This is Bill Ehrlich. Is Now a Good Time.